Hi, listeners. I literally was wrapping up the production of this podcast episode when the news came to me that my friend, Cleverly Stone, has died. I am going to spend the next couple of days collecting my thoughts about Cleverly. Cleverly has been very kind to me. We've had times where we didn't get along. But her and I texted often over the last couple of months. So I knew this was probably coming. I thought I would maybe get a little more warning than this. So I'm, I'm pretty upset. But rather than try and cram some cohesive thoughts into this episode, I'm going to hold that for a future episode. Cleverly, rest in peace. Thank you for everything that you have done for Houston, Houston restaurants, Houston's hungry, and fellow independent journalists like me. We'll move on into the show now. This is Phaedra Cook, editor and publisher of Houston Food Finder, and this is Houston Restaurant News Today for Thursday, May 28th. We knew this was coming, but this has been a really sad week so far. We're now really seeing the fallout of independent Houston restaurants that did not survive the shuttered dining rooms caused by the coronavirus issue. Last week, we reported on some local Houston restaurant companies that closed additional locations. Treebeards is closing its Market Square location. Ragin' Cajun closed its West Chase location. And Dackenbop is letting go of its original spot in the museum district. However, they still have locations that they can do business from. This week's news has been worse. This morning... I think was the most shocking one yet, Bernie's Burger Bus is completely closing. And what's so surprising and disappointing about that is those of us who have been involved in the Houston restaurant scene for so long, we've seen the owner, Justin Turner, grow that business from a single school bus retrofitted to be a food truck. And he grew from one bus to two. I think he may have added even another one after that. And then he was able to make the jump to a brick-and-mortar restaurant in the Bel Air Triangle. And he kept growing. He added a location in the Heights. He added a location in Katy. And then last year opened one in Missouri City. And that was really remarkably well-received in that area. I kept seeing photos of just lines out the door 
and around the corner. So to hear that a company that successful hasn't made it, it just sends the worst signal that you kind of think of a business that grew like that can't make it. Who else isn't going to make it and not open again? Eric Sandler at Culture Map also reported uh, that poaching has closed. It was located in Sawyer Yards. It was a very nice restaurant. Chef Dominic over there was great, and apparently now he's relocating back to New Orleans. So we've lost that chef as well. I first met him when he was working at Kieran's, and then he went on to have his own restaurant, and Chef Kieran was just as proud as she could be. Just based on the rumor mill and what people have said to me over the past year, I think this has been a long struggle for that restaurant, and it's sad. It literally has one of the best views in Houston of downtown. Great place to hang out for fireworks, and I guess this 4th of July, that's not going to be an option. Before that, Barry's Pizza announced on Facebook that it's closing after 37 years of business. So that's kind of devastating as well. I do think we're going to see Justin Turner back in Houston's food scene. I don't know what incarnation that's going to be in. I don't think he knows what incarnation that's going to be in. I don't know if it's going to be Bernie's Burger Bus again, or if it's going to be something else, he could start with a food truck again, or perhaps take advantage of some of these new ghost kitchen opportunities that we are seeing crop up. Yesterday, we published a very in-depth article on ghost kitchens, and we looked at it from both the perspective of how small independent owners are using these as an opportunity to start without a whole lot of overhead or capital. And we also looked at it from the lens of how large corporations are using ghost kitchens. The big story from about two weeks ago on a national level was Chuck E. Cheese, of all places, is selling a brand of pizza and wings called Pasquale's and selling these through third-party delivery services but not identifying that they're the company making these pizzas. The addresses are the same. If you order from a Pasquale's, if you Google the address, it's going to lead you back to a Chuck E. Cheese location. And some consumers just find that deceptive. On the other end of the scale are independent chefs like Gabriel Medina, who he and Stephen Salazar opened Click Virtual Food Hall, a local Houston business that just has kind of a nominal storefront for picking up orders, and then it also delivers. And that's an example of an owner or two owners having an opportunity to have this business thanks to the ghost kitchen concept. Chef Gabriel has several different quote-unquote brands 
for each of his menus. He has a Filipino menu. He has a place that focuses just on sandwiches, like burgers and subs. And he's a well-respected chef. I love his food. So these are being used in different ways. But probably the most groundbreaking piece of news in there is there is a massive ghost kitchen operation that is starting up off of Blodgett. And it's called Blodgett Food Hall. Despite the name, it is focused more around renting out ghost kitchens than necessarily being a food hall. Normally, if you walk into a food hall, someplace like, say, Bravery Chef Hall, you walk in, you see all the stands from the various chefs, and you walk up to the stand and order. With ghost kitchen operations, you're not necessarily walking into, you're not going to walk in and see the kitchen and sit down at a counter at the kitchen. In fact, these are generally just geared to provide delivery and pickup. There are going to be some dine-in areas or dine-on-site areas. There's an architectural rendering that shows tables and chairs out front, and another rendering shows benches inside. So you can actually dine there. There are already food trucks parking there on site, which is good. Food trucks need places to park. It's an interesting story. I encourage you to go to our homepage and take a look. It is a bit of a long read because there was just a lot to unpack with that issue. But with the COVID situation, making things so financially difficult on owners, not just from the dining room closures, but from things like rising food costs, from difficulties in restaffing. You know, these places didn't necessarily get all the staff they had back. And there are some people who are drawing an extra $600 a week on unemployment and actually doing financially better than they actually were working. So it's tough. And because of all that, there are many people who are looking at ghost kitchens as a better option than trying to maintain a dining room and front of house staff and all of that stuff. That article is entitled, Corporations and Independents Alike are Betting on Ghost Kitchens. I am very excited for today's interview guest. Vanessa Lomeli is with Habanera and Laguero. She is in charge of the kitchen. Habanera and Laguero is in South Houston, just off of 45, and it serves the recipes that Vanessa grew up with. She grew up in El Paso. So the Tex-Mex served at Habanero and Laguero is different than say San Antonio influenced Tex-Mex. It takes elements both of traditional Tex-Mex as well as from New Mex or New Mexico Mexican food. And so it's reliance is more, say, on red and green hatch chilies rather than necessarily jalapenos. Her dishes include stacked enchiladas, enchiladas rojas with red sauce, and you can get that with an egg on top, and those are terrific. 
uh, enchiladas verdes, enchiladas de mole. She serves a great queso. The restaurant has a great happy hour, wonderful margaritas. You can get uh, hatch poppers or cheese stuffed hatch peppers. So it's really terrific. If you haven't gone there, I think it's well worth the drive. Because I've known Vanessa for a while, I have been privy to the struggles that actually just got revealed on national television. Habanera and Laguero just was featured on the first episode of the new season, Food Network's Restaurant Impossible. And for those people I know who have watched it, who maybe haven't kind of known the background, I've heard people who just really were both emotionally, I think, very touched by the episode and very surprised. Vanessa doesn't own any portion of the restaurant. The restaurant is owned by her ex-romantic partner, Ben Downing. Of course, this is reality TV, and the producers love to leave these shows on a happy ending, and... I think, unfortunately, in this case, the way that episode ended, it looked like a tight and neat bow on things. That is not really what happened or what the situation is. So Vanessa agreed to be on this podcast and talk about this in her own words. And I really appreciate it. It takes a lot of bravery and openness, I think, to be able to discuss what it's like to kind of have your personal life splattered across national TV. Full disclosure, in the episode, it's mentioned that at one point Ben actually fired Vanessa. In that period after she was fired, she actually worked with Houston Food Finder. She helped us put together our Perfect Ten Gala that we had last year, and her help was really valuable and instrumental. And then she ended up actually cooking and serving food during the cocktail hour portion of the gala. So I just wanted to be very upfront about that, that we've actually worked together, and she's a friend of mine. So I don't know Ben personally at all. I met Ben once the very first time I visited the restaurant. I think this episode of Restaurant Impossible wasn't a good look for him, but as you'll hear, he kind of opened the door for that in the episode as well. So let's get into this conversation with Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Phaedra. How are you? I am good. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today about the show featuring your restaurant, Habanera and the Guero, which just debuted on Food Network's Restaurant Impossible. That was quite a show. It's got to be really weird to be kind of an open book like that in front of a national audience. How are you feeling today about it? Um. You know, I'm I'm feeling better than that it's done in, you know, that it's it's I've been having a lot of anxieties about what they were going to have on the show. It's 
almost three days of filming. So you never know what they're going to put into like 42 minutes. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I mean, it's a little dramatic, but. It was, it was a really dramatic and I, I think certainly a more emotional episode and more personal episode than I was really expecting. I rec- I'm not a Robert Irv- Irvine fangirl at all, but I did think he definitely acted as counselor for a large portion of that show. No, yeah, you really did. I, food wasn't the problem or any, it was just me and Ben being able to just coexist together in this restaurant has always been an issue. We just needed, you know, a middleman. I've had your food multiple times. Allison Cook, the Houston Chronicle restaurant critic, is a huge fan. So I think anybody who's been to your restaurant before knew that this wasn't going to be about the food. Your your food is terrific. Thank you. And of course, it's based on your own family recipes from when you were growing up in El Paso. Right. So, I mean, admittedly, I, I know I personally thought the space could certainly use some help. It oh, was definitely. kind of dated in some areas, like the bar area I, I thought was dated. It's a shame that, like, you can't do a thing really about the exterior, but at least the interior looks really nice now. Do you oh, like wow. it? Oh, yeah, they did. They, they did a great job. Hopefully, we'll, the show will bring us enough business where we can kind of, you know, maybe fix the exterior ourselves. But they, they did such a good job. You just, you just don't know what to expect. You really don't. It's really kind of, I thought it was very brave of you to put yourself out there. But it, at least the interior at least really looks like it was worth kind of having to expose yourself in the situation. People who see reality TV are always curious about how real is the reality TV that we're watching. How much of what was shown last night was scripted? I was surprised because there was little certain things here and there where they wanted us to try doing different scenes. Like, you know, there was one where I was making tortillas with the waitresses and I was like, oh my God, if they put that on there, that's going to look ridiculous because why would I be making tortillas with my waitresses? But, (laughs) But that one thankfully got put on the cutting room floor and... The stuff that they did have on there really, I was pleasantly surprised. The The crew had told me to end, you're going to be really happy. You know what they say about reality TV, but there wasn't really anything scripted on the episode when it was all said and done. Wow, that's amazing to hear, especially because it was such an emotional episode and it was so just personal to you and to Ben. Are you and Ben both still running the restaurant together? Uh, no, we're just so completely different. It's just, we really can't, we can't. (laughs) It's either he's here or I'm here. Right now I've been the one at the restaurant. He's kind of stepped back for now and he's just kind of doing his own thing for the time being. Um, I mean, I don't really know what the future holds, but I've been the one here just running it every day. One of the critical issues that the show was about last night is the fact that even though you run the kitchen and the restaurant serves your food and your family recipes, you apparently did not have any ownership interest whatsoever in the restaurant. And Robert Irvine during the episode was trying to convince Ben that giving you a 50% interest was the right thing to do. Right. 
Uh, yeah. that, that was how it was supposed to be from the get-go. It just never happened. So you're saying that was actually a verbal arrangement between you and Ben that you were always supposed to have a 50% interest? Yeah, well, I mean, it was supposed to, we expected to be together. Um, things were different back then. We didn't fight the way we used to, and we expected this to be our place together. But things progressed, and our relationship kind of went downhill. I guess he didn't see things the same way anymore but I put in a lot of work to this place and it shows that it doesn't work without me the scene in the show last night where Robert Irvine's sitting down at a table with you and Ben and Ben agrees on camera to give you a 50% interest share I mean there's a difference between talking about it and the actual legal paperwork that has to happen in order for it to change. For example, if you have a corporation and you're going to give 50% to somebody, you've got to get that paperwork changed right. with the state of Texas. But yeah, there's a whole lot involved that to, to add me to the ownership. No, we haven't done, I mean, we haven't, we just, money has been an object for a long time. It's every time we start doing better, something happens, it's all this COVID stuff kind of, we, you know, restaurant was getting busy again, then all this happens and we get further in debt and, but no, it, it hasn't happened legally. Um, it's still supposed to. And I know it's crazy that I haven't really, really forced it yet. Life's been tough last few years. I think things have been tough. And of course, this COVID situation didn't help any of the restaurants. And probably really poor timing for Habanera and the Guero because you just did have this big remodel that people are excited about and people want to come check you out. And then the COVID situation hits and shuts down all the dining rooms. Right. But fortunately, I mean, you're back open now at 50% capacity as of today. It's a start. It gives us a little bit of an edge right now for people to come over here. I mean, I'm thankful to just be standing right now. You know, it's hearing so many places shuttering down and sad and scary. I think we're going to push through. Going back to questions kind of just about the production of the show, the, the quote-unquote Hollywood magic. There's a scene where Robert Irvine's there and you open the doors, and this is the initial service, like, before the changes. And all these people come in and they sit down, and, and Irvine says that you don't have enough menus to go around, and he sets a timer, and it appears that it's taking people an hour, some people, just to get a menu. Where did all those people come from? Because all of a sudden you just had a packed dining room. Right. And that's not usually how a dinner service, I mean, you're kind of set up for failure, I feel like. Um, but we, I mean, we didn't have enough menus. That is true. I guess, I guess we didn't fully prepare ourselves. But the show actually, you know, they, they, there was an email address and people had to email in and they would pick you. I'm not even sure what the prerequisites are. are the, they were the ones and they would, there were some regulars and there were some new customers but they just they had a certain time that they had to be there and just kind of let in a whole bunch of people at one time. Oh, see, I remember when the show requested for people to email to have a dinner reservation to be on the show. I was under the impression the whole time that that was dinner service only after the remodel. I didn't realize they were also recruiting people to come in before the remodel. Oh, no, yeah, they, they, they got all the people. And then they even do a small service with, like, 15 people on the first day just so they can get some extra shots of you that they won't get, you know, when it's all when all the chaos is happening. 
What was it like interacting with Robert Irvine? It was intimidating. I, I kind of shut down a little bit. I think he comes in really bold. He only has two days to do this, so he doesn't really have time to come in and just fool around. He gets straight to the point. So it was harder for me to be, I feel, to be open with him. I mean, you don't know what's real or you don't know what's for camera. And it all happens so fast. It's confusing. I mean, but in the end, they did a great thing for us. Having known you and you actually worked with Houston Food Finder for a while and I've interacted with you and you're a friend. And I did perceive it seemed like you were maybe a little more subdued because I know how vivacious you are and you're you're funny and you're outgoing. And it did seem like you were kind of subdued. Yeah, it, it was odd having cameras follow you around all day. And I'm not used to just letting somebody <laughs> yell at me or I wasn't really even the focus. I mean, he kind of had my interest at heart. So it was nice. It was just, it kind of, it, you know, those couple of days kind of broke me a little, you know, we had the episode, like the part where we do the food and I, it made me really start doubting myself. And, you know, I've worked hard to not like I'm really anywhere yet, but to get where I am, I've worked really hard for this. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just, when somebody's just telling you, you're not doing good enough, it's hard. He definitely did though seem sympathetic to your situation. And I'm, I don't know him. I'm just going to make a, a guess that there are many situations where chefs or whoever runs the kitchen, they're providing the ruling work of being in the kitchen, running a staff. It's their food. It's their talent that is so much a factor in a restaurant's success, especially on the public-facing side. There's an entire back-end business financial cost-controlling aspect too, which is the part that Robert Irvine kept saying Ben really should be focusing on. But I think there's a, a situation where it's like the chefs are why people come to the restaurant. And yet frequently the chefs have no interest or very little actual percentage interest of that business. And I think maybe that's why Irvine was so sympathetic to your side of it. Did he say anything to you privately about how he felt about that? No, you know, no, you know, it really, him and Ben took most of the time. I had a whole lot less time with him than Ben had. They had a lot of words together. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel like we missed out on a lot where we could have, you know, maybe learned some more, some things for him. There was a really dramatic couple of days and him and Ben were kind of going at it for those couple of days and... Of course, the show is edited in a certain way and the scenes are cut a certain way. But I will say my jaw dropped during the scene where Ben ran up and confronted Irvine as he's walking out the restaurant. And Ben says something to the effect of you're basically you're empowering her to box me out of the restaurant decisions. I just honestly, my jaw could have hit the floor. I was shocked. And I don't know Ben personally. I, I think I met him once in the restaurant. So I'm not trying to make him into the bad guy here or anything like that. Unfortunately, the show just didn't portray him very well. Yeah. I mean, I haven't spoke to him yet about how he feels about it. And I do feel bad for some of the things that I'm, I'm seeing online. And But he kind of felt like he kind of gave him the fuel. It's unfortunate that it had to be that way. 
Yeah, and I have to agree with you just based on, I mean, I know we don't see every scene that's shot once they cut it all together, but just based on what they did show last night, and even Robert Irvine tweeted last night that he found Ben extremely difficult to work with, but you just have to work with what you've got. So those two definitely did not get along at all. Oh, no. Um, No. The, the fight in the kitchen where they threw the plate, they had kicked everybody out of the kitchen. So, you know, I was outside. I didn't even hear what else went on. You know, you could kind of hear plates breaking and yelling, but you couldn't really make it out. It was, yeah, it was, <laughs> that was something else. Yeah. I didn't understand that scene at all where Robert's kind of pushing Ben to admit that he isn't the cook there. He's not the person in charge of the kitchen. And Ben seemed to insist on, demonstrating that he could cook is that something that he normally does um no it's just you know we're all good at different things ben's he's a math guy and he's a thinker when you cook in the kitchen you just you have to be able to do three or four things at a time and you have to move quickly and he likes to really think everything through and i think robert just saw that that just wasn't the role for him and we could have probably done this better together if we just had our own roles and didn't get in each other's way but just never never happened the way it was supposed to. Yeah, and I guess that is an irony. I mean, restaurants definitely need the numbers person. They need the person to control the costing and payroll and handle all of that paperwork that some people find incredibly boring. And I've known chefs who think they can do it all. They can both take care of the menu and run the kitchen and they can also be the accounting person and the labor person and the payroll person and it, it never works it's no, very it's, rare it's too much that's like, that's kind of what i'm having to do right now um you know i have people that help me here and there with scheduling and but i mean it's, it's just it's too much and it's just totally different skill sets you know people like you said have their own strengths and their own talents and generally things work best when you are leveraging the talents that you actually have instead of trying to wedge yourself into a role that you don't want or, or aren't very good at. Right. I hate anything where I have to sit still really. <laughs> I'm with you. Maybe someday both of us can, can each get our special person who's going to take care of all that stuff. <laughs> oh my God. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I, hope, I hope so. It's a lot to having a small business and I don't think people understand how hard it is on the food you know like i said earlier i've always loved your food anyway but obviously when irvine came in there were changes that he made to the menu what i mean we saw some of the changes on camera some of the dishes that he revamped but what generally did he end up doing with the menu well when they do the grand reopening it's um a small menu of only of only his things we're not even serving our stuff at the grand reopening. And he even told me, you know, like, as you go on, maybe you can make this more your own or if things don't work, you'll cut them. The food tasted good, but I don't feel like it really represented me or my culture or Texas. It tasted good. It, it wasn't bad food or anything. I didn't really identify with it. I'm going to put some of the stuff back on here, like while the show's still, you know, hyped up and people want to come in for the things. But I mean, if they didn't sell one by one, I take things off the menu that just, you know, things were spoiling and... People came here for my food. You, you still have my stacked enchiladas, right? Of course, yes. <laughs> my rojo sauce. Yeah. <laughs> and you have, I mean, not just a really good essential margarita, but you've got some over-the-top frozen drinks, too. Do you still have those? Oh, gosh, of course, yeah. I mean, 
Mark I love those. Our thing, you know, we, we, we just, we try to have other cocktails on the menu and now everybody comes for the margaritas and Robert likes those. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. I, I think you've got a great happy hour. I'm guessing happy hour is back. Yes, we are. We're doing happy hour. We do it every day, even on Saturdays. Currently, we're closed on Sundays. Maybe later on when we're a little better staffed, I'll open up again. But I just kind of have to have a day where this place isn't, you know, open. Even if I'm not here, I'm still kind of worried about the place or I'm still getting calls about things. So we're closed on Sundays. But every, yeah, happy hours uh, six days a week and then all day on Wednesdays, four to seven every day. 250 domestics our margaritas are start uh, start like at 550 and it just depends on fruit and size how much how much they are i think happy hour is just a fantastic way for anyone who has not already been to your restaurant that's just a great way to put your toe in the water and just come in try some drinks try some smaller dishes or some of the snacks and of course i think people will probably be inclined to just stay over and, until dinner too but I think it's a great low risk way for people to just go try it. And I think they will be really pleased. I love it. And I just think it's so much fun. Thank you. As you know, it's nice. There was a lot of people that were kind of, you know, nice to see. And of course you're going on social media because you want to see what people are saying. And a lot of people are sticking up for him, you know, saying the food was a five out of 10, but I mean, of course it's a food network. So of course they're going to want to do something with the food. Oh, there's always got to be, somebody who's got their ego tied up in their opinion <laughs> yeah you get the people coming out of the woodwork who you've never seen before going yeah I went there I, I totally agree it's like did you really go there or are you just saying that I don't know yeah but uh, you know what Robert was eating the time we were talking so I think he liked it more than a five that's the end of my interview with Vanessa of Habanero and the Guero and having watched Robert Irvine eat that food during that segment of the episode, I have to agree. I think he liked it better than a five too. I'm just saying. We did have some sound problems with the call towards the end, but we were pretty close to the end anyway. The last question I'd asked her was uh, what the fate was of the custom-made habanero pinata that usually hangs from the ceiling of that restaurant. It's modeled after her and it's bouncing around in her car right now. So we shall see if it gets reinstated to its rightful place in the restaurant in the future. Thanks for joining me. Some of my future guests include Rachel Lewis of Hometown Social, a public relations firm Rachel's clients include some notable Houston restaurants. I am expecting to have Shannon Scott with Roma, Italian restaurant in Rice Village, on the show soon. Thanks for joining me, and I hope to be talking to you again soon. Take care.